Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position, along with your favorite beverage, to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine the show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience at Smith Weekly, including Dave V, Cindy W, and Jack T. Gregor Gregidson is on the show today. Gregor is founder of Silver Bullion, a Singapore-based precious and base metals service provider that offers bullion sales, storage services, secured metals, borrow lend services, and a number of other solutions offered online through its website. You can learn more about Silver Bullion via their website. That's silverbullion.com.sg. Mr. Gregidson, thank you for coming on the show and welcome. Thank you for having me. Well, where are you chatting with us from and how are things in Silver Bullion's home base, Singapore? Yeah, so as you mentioned, I'm, I'm calling from Singapore. I moved, I moved here about uh, 11 years ago. And uh, Singapore is currently on a lockdown, but it's not a very, well, the stores are closed, but um, we are still able to go out and so on. So it's not one of those really tough lockdowns like we had in Italy. And uh, overall, things are doing quite well. Um, in Singapore, we, we based on the headlines, we have about 20,000 cases of COVID-19, but um, there only has been 20 deaths or something like this. And uh, most of these cases are confined to a small area. So overall, it's, I wouldn't say it's life as usual, but you know, it is, uh, it is not like, like you're very concerned here. Uh, it's more a new phase of life where you cannot go to work and you have to work from home instead. Now, where are you from before uh, moving to Singapore? Well, it's a little bit of a complicated story. I'm originally German, um, but I grew up in Italy. And when I was 17, I moved to California. Uh, I saw Baywatch on TV and I thought that was a good place to go. Um, <laughs> so I, I actually ended up graduating from Oceanside High School in, in California. And then I lived 12 years in, in the United States. Um, in 2005, I returned back to Italy to help my parents sell the vacation rentals we used to have. Um, and so I ended up back in Europe. I tried living in Germany for two or three years. Um, I used to work as a, a senior business intelligence consultant at the time, but I just couldn't quite, I didn't like Germany so much anymore at that point because I was literally, literally paying 80% in taxes. So I did two trips around the world. I looked for a place which I liked and I ended up finding Singapore and I just pretty much fell in love with this place. And, and so I moved over here and that's, that's been about 11 years ago. So uh, that's how I ended up in Singapore. Well, Gregor, let's move on. And what do you tell us uh, why you started Silver Bullion? And then also, can you talk a little bit about your, your business transactions prior to founding the company? Yeah, so Silver Bullion was founded uh, after my experience in 2008. Um, at the time, I was working uh, data architect for Commerzbank, uh, Commerzbank being second big 
speak in Germany. And at the time, it was already in Singapore, but Singapore, Frankfurt um, essentially spent on a three-month project uh, building some compliance systems for the bank. So around that time, Lehman Brothers went bankrupt, so I had a first-hand view of financial crisis playing out from the inside. And at that time, people go out and buy fiscal precious metals because they were scared that uh, the counterparty, counterparty financial institutions they were, uh, will go out of business. I mean, you have to remember on that time, uh, there was uh, in Germany who transferred, it was close to $50 million to Lehman Brothers uh, just hours before they went bankrupt. And that person was the you know, stupidest trader in Germany. So nobody wanted to beat that record and transfer money to say JP Morgan or some other bank out there where nobody knew if that was going to be the next bank that was going to go bankrupt. So people started buying physical precious metals and the distinction between paper precious metal party risk and the physical became very, very important. So around that, I, I figured it might not be a bad idea to buy a little bit of silver myself and I ended up going to a bullion dealer in the Frankfurt area and they were all sold out. So they would buy back silver, they would not sell it. And so I went to a different one and a different one. It turned out that uh, I couldn't find any physical. I finally ended up getting a one kilo silver bar gift shop of the European Central Bank. Um, there was a, a, a dealer, uh, the director of this gift shop, he he just told me come back in three days and he gave me this little bar. I ended up buying it and paying 19% sales tax in Germany, then bringing it with me back to Singapore. But essentially, um, during that time, I had a moment where it became very clear to me that our financial system is much more fragile that I was thinking or that I believed to earlier. And is something which is going to be in very high demand when the next bigger crisis is going to come around. And based on my experiences, when we have a big crisis, Singapore will be a very good place to store it. So uh, CC basically told me that it makes sense to go back to Singapore and buy some physical gold and silver. And when I did that, uh, I realized that there was no place in Singapore to buy silver. The best you could do is to put some ad in a newspaper somewhere and hope that somebody uh, might have some maple leaves, you know, that you obtained somewhere and try to get it. There was no dealer. And at the time, it was difficult to get any international shipping done. So I thought, hey, if nobody's doing it, I want to buy the silver anyway. Uh, if I cannot sell anything, it's okay. I'll just keep it under my bed. And if somebody is interested in buying it, then I I might as well make a website um, and you know see if anybody buying it. And so I was born back in 2009, April. Um, I, because of my technical background, I essentially what was probably at the time the most sophisticated bullion dealer websites in Southeast Asia because uh, we had live pricing and live inventory. Um, but instead of having 
I'm basically just putting that silver under my bed. Um, and when people were going to buy some train station and uh, sell some three bars of silver for, I don't know, $3,000. So uh, silver bullion basically had some very humble origins, essentially, uh, of me doing it this way. And after $800,000 in sales, I realized that it would be time to uh, maybe get the first employee, get an office and, and really spend more time on silver bullion. And so I slowly graduated uh, away from my banking job and essentially ended up doing silver bullion full time. And since that time, about 800 million Singapore dollars in sales. So that is maybe 550 million US dollars in sales. Um, we are now storing about 450 million dollars, that's about 320 or so US dollars worth of gold and silver for our clients. And our now has about 24 employees. So uh, we've grown up quite a lot. And throughout that time, I've always uh, sort of used my technical background to sort of see how, uh, what new kind of service we can develop. Um, but essentially we, into storing silver for clients across the world um, as systemic wealth protection. And what I mean with systemic wealth protection is uh, that this golden in a way said basically built for a crisis. When a crisis happens, uh, you know, it, it's basically systems it is separated from as uh, a or risk, so said essentially a, a life financial life life raft or a financial kind of tool for people to to put some of the wealth into something that's going to be very safe no matter what's going to happen. The company has grown up a lot since 2009, and I can say that I've been using the surface for a number of years now, and I've just been absolutely very happy with how things have gone and. Can you tell us a little bit more about the ownership structure of Silver Billion? Maybe speak to, besides yourself, of course, as founder, uh, who else is behind the company and, and how it was set up? To start off, it was myself. Um, Silver Billion is very unusual as a company because we never really raised much funds outside and we never really took much loans. That's the reason we could end up doing it is because I put my own money in and um, I had almost no expenses to start because, as I mentioned earlier, we and all the technical stuff we were done we done in house. So uh, we essentially started slowly. We kept all the funds in the company, and then we started growing. And what I've done is I always felt that money uh, at the end of the day is not that hard to get. You, you you either have a company that nobody wants to invest in or you have a company where uh, everybody seems to want to give you money. So for me, my goal at, at you know selling some shares in Silver Bullion has always been to sell it to people which are working at Silver Bullion or entities which are going to have some strategic role to work together. And so it's always very important not so much about the money, but about who it is that's going to become a co-owner of Silver Bullion. And at the same time, I very strongly believe that uh, if you have good employees or you have good people, that these people should get uh, a stake in the company. 
So if you're looking at this ownership right now, you will find that um, I'm owning about 55% or so. And the employees, we have about 22 shareholders or so. So most of our employees are having some shares in the company. Um, and have a portion, about maybe 20% or so, is owned by a company called uh, Aspiel. Aspiel is also the largest uh, retail stores or chains in Singapore when it comes to jewelry. And they also have pawn shops. Now, I sold a portion of the, of the company to them because we subsidiary together eventually sells bullion locally in Singapore and that is called hard bullion. Um, uh, because I prefer silver bullion to basically focus on focus on uh, technological solutions like uh, the peer-to-peer -peer lending system and focus on storage for international customers. Whereas gold at bullion is essentially more of a retail setup where this, this relationship uh, came up. And then as far as the rest is, it's basically just um, there's this one person uh, who, who helped me to set up the peer-to-peer system, which uh, has become an entrepreneur and is very active in the insurance side of, of the business, which is also a, a shareholder now. But essentially, the philosophy that, that we've been running at Silver Bullion is to have the peer us to essentially have some ownership in silver bullion and what that is that we have extremely low turnover and silver bullion is organized in a way because these people have ownership not just legal but also mentally have ownership to essentially develop new products and you know take take quite good care of customers without me really having to be there all the time so uh, i'm in the lucky position that silver bullion is running very well now uh, without necessarily me being there for day-to-day -day operations. And so I can essentially focus on where I think the company needs to go from a strategic point of view of, of, of developing new services and new systems. Uh, so I can basically continue with... And Silver Bullion essentially is three companies, um, itself, which trades gold and silver, house which stores uh, gold and silver we, we have our own vault uh, which can store about 600 tons of gold and silver and a little bit little bit is, is essentially software development arm of the company which has the um, not just the website but the um, uh, inventory management accounting system the vault management system was developed in-house and out of that came the peer-to-peer -peer lending uh, systems that we developed, as well as um, some other projects which we're working on, such as the Gram Chain system, which is a new asset blockchain-based asset tracking system, which will be uh, slowly phasing in, as well as uh, the cash gold token system, which we're working on, as well as the um, expansion of the peer-to-peer -peer system. Uh, to basically be cram chain based, which is another project that we have. Yeah, so essentially we are we are these three companies in one: uh, storage, trading, and technology. Excellent. No, there's a lot of stuff going on, and and I like that you guys are focusing on being on that 
leading edge of some of the new technology and new features that you guys are bringing into the company. Why don't we talk a little bit more about just briefly, one of the things that's interesting that I think uh, the audience would be interested in hearing about is your guys' fee structure for the storage of the metals. It's a weight-based structure, which is very different than a lot of your competitors. Can you just speak to that for a moment? Yes. To understand that, you have to realize, first of all, that almost all of our competitors don't run their own world. Um, it is a common practice in the industry to essentially outsource storage to third-party um, storage providers. Uh, these are companies such as Binks, Luke, Mark Ahmed, and these are global vault operators. So these companies bullion for you and they will charge a percentage fee. And that's essentially why uh, most of the industry is being charged a fee. Now, in our case, um, things are a bit different because we operate our own vault. So we, we, we don't outsource to any third parties. And maybe at a later point, I can explain why we build our own vault. But one of the consequences of running your own world is that there are essentially two types of fees uh, that you have to cover when you're storing precious metals. Uh, there is a variable component, and the variable component is mostly the insurance that we have to pay in order to cover that, that bullion. And the insurance will go up in cost as precious metals go up. So it's really based on a percentage of value. Other bigger factor is the fixed costs that you have of, you know, salaries, the um, facility operating costs, and so on and so on, that has to be covered. And so silver, because silver is very bulky, uh, the um, variable cost of insurance is storage cost, the physical space that is being needed, and so on is over 100 times bigger than that of gold. And because we're storing a lot of silver, uh, our costs really are set up in a way where fixed costs are really more important than the variable portion of it. And because of we essentially charge a fixed cost um, per ounce per year. So in the case of gold, for example, uh, that cost will be around six US dollars or so. Um, per per year per ounce of gold. Now, on a percentage basis, if gold is twelve hundred, that means it's a half a uh, half a percent per year. If gold goes up to eighteen hundred, then that will be going down to one third of a percent. So instead of having fixing it at a percentage, essentially we are fixing a fixed price for it, and the knockoff effect of that is that as gold goes up or if silver goes up, the client essentially is paying less and less on a percentage basis for that. And uh, that's different and uh, quite a number of our customers like it because obviously they're buying the gold and silver with the expectation of it going up over time. And when that happens, uh, essentially they end up getting to pay less percentage wise. Yes, absolutely. And that's a good setup. I, I really like that feature. And also, I can just say, we don't need to get into it, but I can say that your guys' uh, pricing of your various metals, and I know you guys have more now than just precious metals, but also some base metals uh, have come in. But you guys are very well competitively priced um, for the various products that you sell. So not only do you have a good storage 
structure and a good fee for storage, you also have competitive prices for for products that you guys are actually you know have on hand to place into storage. Can you speak a little bit more about your guys's peer-to-peer lending? I think that that's also important for our audience to understand. Absolutely. So essentially about four years ago, five years ago now, we had a client who told us that that he needed money, but he didn't want to sell his gold. And so he asked if we can give him a loan. And at the time, we couldn't do that because we didn't have a a lending license. Um, And so we we ended up looking at ways how we could make that work. And our first reaction was, I guess, a typical one of contacting a bank and maybe talking with them if it's possible to forward clients to a bank. And the more we got into this, uh, the more I realized that the terms from the bank were really very one-sided. Uh, they wanted to have exclusivities. They wanted to essentially be able to uh, decide how much to lend us or not to lend us, um, as well as some other terms which really weren't very practical and, and so on. So essentially, as we worked with the banks, we looked at alternatives on how we could do it in a better way. And uh, one of the lawyers we worked with uh, in looking into this is he actually is a very interesting uh, guy. He he used to be uh, deputy uh, director of the Monetary Authority of Singapore. And he actually set up much of the financial uh, legislation uh, when it comes to to financial assets in Singapore. So very, very experienced guy. And he basically explained to us, and he made us aware that because of the way we store the bullion, which is not stored as a pool system like most most storage systems out there, but is instead based on individual bars, which are owned by customers, um, it is possible for us to essentially have a peer-to-peer kind of lending structure where the money is not coming from a bank, but the money is coming from another customer. And we essentially act as an escrow between the lender being a customer and the borrower who is another customer. So um, what that means is because the borrower has say $100,000 worth of gold, uh, that borrower can ask for a $62,000 loan and can the fact that he wants to borrow that on our uh, peer-to-peer lending uh, market page. So say the borrower could say, I want to borrow $62,000 at say 3% per year. Uh, and he wants to say borrow it for one year and uh, basically puts a post out. Now we might have lenders who might be willing to lend that, but they might be offering 4%. And so the borrower might say, okay, I'm willing to go up to three and a half, and the lender might you know, end up accepting offer and send essentially a loan, a contract is created, whereby the lender uh, will have deposited the $62,000 with us, and we are forwarding that to the borrower, and we are locking the $100,000 worth of gold that he's holding with us, as a security to to secure that loan. Now, sixty-two uh, percent means that there's roughly percent 
worth of um, coverage for that loan. Now, if during the duration of that loan, gold were to start falling to the point where it reaches 110% of coverage, then we will be selling that gold to make sure that the lender always gets their principal and interest back. And whatever's remaining will be going back to, to, to the borrower. So the system is designed to be extremely safe. And because of that, the interest rate has become quite competitive because the interest rate is not determined by us, it is by the lenders. And it started off around 6%. And since then, because we normally have too many lenders, not enough borrowers, um, the interest rate tends to fall. And now it's between four, maybe four and a half and 2%. And lenders are very, very willing to lend for short term. So you can get um, a one month loan, for example, at 2% annualized, which means 0.17% or so on a one month loan. Um, or borrow for as much as two years, in which case the lenders tend to want to have about 4% or so. Uh, so that's just kind of how the market developed. But the system has been very successful. Uh, we've had nearly 5,000 contracts created over the last four years. So typically we have three or four per day. And we've transacted about close to 150 million Singapore dollars. So that's about 105 million US dollars. Uh, we've never had um, a late uh, payment. We never had a default. Uh, the reason we never had a late payment is as an additional security, uh, silver bullion is about half a million dollars. Actually, in this case, not silver bullion, uh, it's, it's myself. I put up half a million dollars worth of my own money to essentially act as a buffer. If a customer has um, or a borrower is not returning funds on time, uh, say the money is due on April 1st, mm -hmm. if it's not there on April 1st, then this buffer fund comes in uh, to make sure the money is going to the, to the lender back on time. And the reason why I'm very particular about this is that people like to roll over the loans um, and so it's important that there's not a delay. And the half million dollars has basically been enough to act as a buffer whenever there's a, uh, a delay. Uh, we are not worried about defaults because, as I mentioned, we always have a minimum of 110% worth of precious metals to cover that loan. So in that sense, we essentially build a peer-to-peer -peer lending system, which is extremely safe and whose interest rate is quite low. So it's it's quite different from the traditional peer-to-peer, -peer, unsecured peer-to-peer -peer lending systems. Um, yeah. And that's essentially what peer-to-peer -peer lending is. It's fantastic. I've used it both ways. I've lent and borrowed using the system. The whole structure, the whole thought process, the secured nature of it, which is very conservative, I might add, really it's brilliant it's really a good setup and so it's it's really fantastic now gregor for folks who send and leave cash a cash balance of silver bullion um, let's say they might use it for some lending but let's say maybe they don't use it all they have a cash balance how is that treated and and where are those funds held at so the peer-to-peer -peer lending system is essentially separate from silver bullion uh, as an escrow account and, and we never intermix these funds but essentially, Sarah, Sarah stored at um, one of the largest banks in Singapore, the largest bank in Singapore, really, uh, DBS Bank. And 
uh, normally people will just deposit some funds in order to then use these funds for lending. But to answer the question, essentially, it will be DBS Bank in Singapore. Let's talk about Singapore for a moment because I know we talked about you know uh, COVID and and stuff at the beginning and the lockdown in Singapore, etc. But speak to Singapore as a jurisdiction now. What is your view on Singapore as a jurisdiction? Arguably, in the top three financial jurisdictions in the world, probably. Can you speak to your opinion on Singapore now in light of what's happened in Hong Kong? For the audience who maybe is not familiar, tell us about Singapore and, and why is Singapore really among the best, if not the best? Yeah, I'll try to not go overboard because I could talk for hours about this, but essentially I found Singapore by doing two trips around the world, uh, essentially backpacking and looking at countries where I would like to move. And having lived in Italy, Germany, and, and the US for a long time, I I felt that in all of these countries, um, I felt disappointed with the government. I, I felt disappointed with the direction things are going towards. Um, I felt that taxes are becoming higher and higher and higher. I felt that the money is not being spent well, and I felt that there's so much borrowing uh, going on that, uh, and, and that politicians don't care about the next generation. That you know all of these uh, debts that are being accumulated is going to have to be paid by somebody, and I just didn't feel like it was run well. Uh, so when I ended up stopping in Singapore, I ended up buying a book called From Third World to First World. And this was written by Lee Kuan Yew, who was essentially the prime minister of Singapore from 1965 to 89. So he, he essentially was the driving force into creating modern Singapore. And this book was almost like an instruction manual on how to create a successful city state. And I read most of that book in, in one go on my flight back from Singapore back to, to Germany at the time. And by the time I had read about through half of it, I made up my mind that I will be moving to Singapore. And the reason is that Singapore is the only country I've found so far where the government really is intent on doing what's best long-term for the country, as opposed to having politicians which are just focused on some opinion polls or on the next election cycle. And that is reflected in Singapore's success. Uh, if you're looking at it, Singapore is a small island of about 700 square kilometers. and uh, yet, they used to be a third world country, essentially very poor. They just had a good trading location, but nothing else, uh, no natural resources. Mm -hmm. And they managed in a span of about 50 years to become one of the world's richest countries in the world. Uh, to give you an idea, the largest foreign investor in China is Singapore as a country. Um, the sovereign wealth fund is about 700 billion US dollars. Um, and Singapore has done a lot of things right. For one thing, the Singapore government says it's my job as a government to make sure that you as a citizen has a good education. And Singapore has always been rating on top when it comes to PISA studies for the educational system and so on. Um, it is uh, my job as a government to make sure that the conditions are there for companies to create jobs. 
and it is a person's responsibility to find a job. So uh, Singapore does not have uh, a lot of welfare um, benefits and does not have unemployment help uh, because the Singapore point of view is that you know the family should be served first and the government will basically only act as a last resort in order to help people. Um, so it's essentially uh, a system which you know encourages entrepreneurship it encourages work and it has an incredible amount of freedom i, I know oftentimes the united states is you know often associated with this entrepreneurial freedom but when i was living in the united states i tried for four years to get a green card in order to be able to create my own company um, and say ended up losing my application and i just wasn't able uh, to have my own company in the united states even so, I lived 12 years in the United States. I have um, two bachelor degrees, one master degree from US universities and so on. I had a good paying job, but I couldn't create my own company in the US. Um, here in Singapore, when I arrived, I, I immediately got a personalized employment pass, which essentially allowed me to uh, you know, work for anybody I wanted. So um, it's you it's an extremely friendly sort of environment for companies and at the same time everybody is pretty much taken care of um, and what i mean with that is i uh, i married in singapore um, and my wife's to a local my wife's dad she he is he has been a bus driver all his life so uh, he has not have a high income job but yet by the time he retired at 65 he had about $150,000 in his bank account uh, via, the, via the pension system in his name. And he owned a property worth half a million dollars. And that's a bus driver. So, uh, so wealth, you know, while there might be gaps between the rich and the poor, the poor in Singapore are extremely rich. And again, that comes back down to the way the company, I mean, the company, the country is set up. And maybe to give you one more example without getting into too many, um, and people always ask, how can you have such low taxes? Because I'm literally only paying, paying about three or four percent in taxes right now. Um, how can there be so low taxes and yet still, you know, function as a country uh, and have a strong army? Because Singapore is actually considered a medium-sized military. Uh, the Air Force is about the same size as the German Air Force. So how can they pay for all of this? And you know, and one answer, part of the answer is they're extremely efficient. The Singapore government is split into ministries, so Ministry of Defense, Ministry of Transport, Ministry of Education, and so on. And every year, the budget for each ministry is cut, not increased automatically, as is normal in most countries, but it's cut. And the extra funds are going into a common fund, and each ministry has to try and get the funds back out by doing some sort of improvement through um, uh, uh, and basically bids. So what, what the government created is uh, a competition between ministries and within ministries to essentially get these funds back and, and to create some sort of project which is going to improve the efficiency of the, of the ministry. And that's a very simple concept, but once you start looking at it, 
you just start to wonder why aren't we doing this in the United States? Why are we doing it in Europe? Why is it not being done? Because it is such a logical, common sense way of running things. Um, and essentially, Singapore has you know 15 to 20 things that they're doing like this. And if you put these things together, you essentially create a state which is managing to have budget surpluses every year, not, not deficits. And these budget surpluses are then being reinvested. They're going into the wealth, the sovereign wealth funds, which are then investing in Singapore, outside of Singapore. And over time, instead of going into greater and greater debt, essentially Singapore uh, ended up becoming richer and richer. And they've been very good stewards of these funds. And by doing all of this, you know, they essentially created uh, a government that is extremely efficient, uh, extremely wealthy. And what most people might not realize is also very good at taking care of the local people here. Singapore government is basically run by uh, ministers and each minister has to go and, and sit down and be accessible to, any, to the public uh, twice per month. So I can go down next Wednesday, for example, and complain about something about the government to them, and they're going to have to listen, and they're going to try and see if they can fix something. So, you know, I might go there and say, it's been taking four days to get my passport, it can take that long, and they would listen to that and then actually go and see how they can make it faster, how to get the passport in less than four days. And so it's, it's a type of work ethic and capability and the quality of the governmental officials here are just very, very high. And, and that's very, very unique about Singapore. And that's essentially why Singapore is such a, uh, why, let's put it this way, I more or less fell in love with the place here. Um, when it comes to gold storage, oftentimes I get the question, why Singapore? And essentially there's three parts to it. Um, the first one is that Singapore is wealthy. Because, and because it's a wealthy country, they will not, they don't have a need, you know, in a time of crisis to consider nationalizing gold assets, which is what a lot of people are worried about when they want to store gold somewhere. Um, the next point, which is very important, is that all of the wealth in Singapore has pretty much been built based on confidence. And Lee Kuan Yew himself summed up Singapore with one word, which is confidence, meaning that uh, Singapore is hosting a very large number of international companies. Uh, almost every large international company ends up setting up their Asian AQ, HQ in Singapore because um, it's it's a very it's a highly trusted jurisdiction essentially. And if Singapore were to ever lose her trust, it will be economic suicide. And the government's aware of this. So essentially what that means is that Singapore will be the last country out there to ever consider doing a nationalization of gold. Um, and lastly, Singapore is surprisingly well defended. And that's something most people don't realize. Um, but Singapore has, um, essentially the army was trained by Israel back in, uh, during the first years of independence back in 1965. And they adopted many of, of the Israeli type of uh, ways of running the military. And that includes a two-year uh, draft, essentially, 
and citizens have to go back until age 40 uh, to the military, which means that Singapore can essentially raise an army of close to 1 million uh, troops within two weeks. And the military budget in Singapore is about three times that of Malaysia, which is the biggest uh, neighbor. And they have some of the best equipment out there, um, including uh, about 105 F-15 and F-16 fighters. Apparently, they're looking at getting the F-35 now. So they have their own defense industry as well, um, building 105 millimeter guns for the Chinook transportable artillery for the for the Indian Army and and so on. I mean, the more you read about Singapore, you essentially find a history of them having a weakness and figuring out ways not just to cover that weakness, but essentially make uh, make it into an asset. Uh, so, so that's essentially Singapore. It, it is a place where uh, people are aware that they are small. And over the years, they've been overcoming one difficulty after another one through good government and good management. And, and they continue to do that. And that's essentially what makes Singapore so special. Well, it's very fascinating. And it sounds like Europe, the US, and some other countries should probably come over and pull out their notebooks and, and take some notes and figure out how they can improve their own countries. It looks like Singapore rewards talent, attracts talent, which also has added to the wealth of the country. And yeah, really fascinating. I appreciate the detail, Gregor, that you're giving. Back to Silver Bullion for a moment. Can you speak to the policy about privacy of clients? I know clients coming from overseas, there are concerns about privacy and that's a growing concern as the days go on. Can you talk about your guys' privacy policy with regards to inquiries from other regulators outside of Singapore as far as what details you guys would provide them and, and what grounds that you would provide those details? Okay, from a regulatory point of view, what what you have to understand is that it's very important whether you're deemed a financial institution or not. So there are international reporting treaties out there, such as FATCA, uh, or the OECD standard, which essentially require any transaction to be reported back to the United States or some other country. Um, but these laws only apply to financial institutions. And therefore, it becomes very important uh, to look at the definition of a financial institution. Now, in the case of FATGA, which is sort of, uh, uh, you know, a good example, there's uh, intergovernmental agreement between Singapore and the United States to essentially follow FATGA. And the reason why that is, is because no country out there wants to be on the blacklist uh, when it comes to, to reporting issues. But uh, whether we are part of that or not depends on the definition of what a financial institution is. Now, the US definition of a financial institution is very broad. It essentially states anybody dealing in commodities can be seen as a financial institution. Now, it's, that means that a grocery store selling an apple could be deemed a financial institution because an apple can be seen as a commodity. So Singapore uh, did not agree to that definition in the context of the intergovernmental agreement with the United States. It essentially said that the definition is too broad and it needs to be narrowed down to something more 
practical. And so the definition that we have to worry about is anybody dealing in commodity futures. Now, Silver Bullion does not deal in commodity futures. And what that means is that in Singapore, we, we have clarity. It's not a matter of, you know, are we a financial institution? Are we not? Are we not because we are saying we are not? And so on, which might be the case in other jurisdictions. But in Singapore, uh, it is a very clear sort of definition that as long as we don't deal in commodity futures, which we don't, which you can think of as paper gold, essentially we we are not falling under FATCA. And because we are not falling under FATCA, uh, we don't have to report data back to the United States or to third party countries because it's, it's a similar setup for the OECD standards and so on. So what that means in practice is that we have no reporting requirements back to uh, third party governments and we don't have reporting requirements uh, within Singapore either. So we do have an AML KYC sort of system in place. And you know we want to make sure that the funds are are not coming from problematic sources, uh, but that's essentially something that's a company policy, uh, which we are required to do now as part, of, which we used to do voluntarily, but essentially we are required to do that now uh, because we are we are regulated in Singapore under PSPM Act, which essentially prescribes some of these things. But to make a long story short essentially there is no reporting outside of Singapore uh, and there's no reporting in Singapore uh, unless there is some sort of investigation about uh, you know some criminal act to be committed or something like that and in order to prevent ever falling or having this sort of situation uh, we we essentially have an AML KYC system that we go through to make sure that you know the funds are not problematic funds and speaking, you said paper gold. What are your mm -hmm. thoughts on ETFs and publicly traded funds? And then also, last and not necessarily fully related, what's your position on actual precious metals producing mining equities? So, so over the last 10 years, I basically ended up spending a lot of time to understand the precious metal industry by virtue of being in it, and especially the storage side. What I realized is that there are quite a number of ways that customers are normally misled and one of the most important ones is the idea of ownership you know ownership is a term that's being thrown out there and, and without oftentimes incorrectly uh, because oftentimes people might think they own physical gold or silver when in reality they are just an unsecured creditor to some counterparty uh, which might not even be storing any physical at all. So they might just be hedging their position using future contracts. Um, and not only is there no, I'll say not owners, but there's no actual bullion behind it. And that is not an exception. That actually tends to be the norm in, in this industry. So um, when, when there is precious metals backing something, since those precious metals are still on the balance sheet of the entity holding it, not not that of the depositor, not that of the customer. And because of that, there's still counterparty risk. So essentially, if you want to really own precious metals, um, there are only two ways of doing so. You either buy it yourself and you store it yourself, or 
you buy it from an entity which sells it to you through an invoice, uh, specific bars, so that's your private property, and then that property is, you, you give it back to that entity to essentially store it for you. Uh, but the important part is that it has to be in your name, because when it is under your name, under the laws of the jurisdiction where it's being stored, then you cannot be defaulted upon. Uh, if somebody ends up taking it from you, then it's called stealing. It's not a, uh, and uh, there's insurance against it. But if all you are is an unsecured creditor and that counterparty defaults, then you don't have anything. And uh, in that case, it's, there's no insurance covering it because it was not a matter of theft. It was a matter of the party defaulting. So um, I always try to explain to people that very, very important distinctions between being an owner of the physical and legally and just being an unsecured creditor. And so that is what um, we are very adamant in, in silver bullion, that all of the gold and silver that we store essentially is owned directly by the customer, which is why you have to own a full bar. You cannot buy half a bar of gold, for example, uh, because by definition, you cannot be an owner of half a bar because it will, it will have to be owed to somebody or portion of that bar. So um, that's very, very important. And that's, I think, the value that there is in buying physical precious metal. Because if you're buying physical precious metal, typically you're doing it because you want to protect yourself from the next crisis. Um, otherwise, if you just want to have a long position or a short position in gold or silver, then you can definitely go with the financial uh, paper type of gold, which will be somewhat cheaper, but it doesn't give you that protection. Uh, if you buy physical precious metals, but you buy it in a way where you are not the owner, then you would have to ask yourself, why go through that process in the first place when you can just go for the paper directly? So these are my thoughts about the paper. Um, if you if you understand what's behind it, you know don't either go for the paper if it's a short-term trading that you want to go up and down, or if it's for long-term storage and you know make sure that you actually are the legal title owner of that gold and silver. And I would just say you know certainly there is a big distinction, and we like to talk about physical ownership in places like silver bullion makes a lot of a case for wealth protection, whereas other vehicles, if you're looking to speculate or you know you see the gold price is going to head higher, that's a separate place where you go and and we of course uh, our work is is over on the mining equity side, and of course, you know if you want that type of leverage and that type of speculation you could look to some certain producers, but we try to tell people to keep it separate. There's two different vehicles here for two different purposes. And myself personally, Gregor, I'm not much of a fan of the ETFs, but uh, I really appreciate you sharing that, your thoughts on that, because I think it's very important for the audience to understand. You spoke just a little bit about verification and audit and so forth. Can you talk about that in the case of Silver Bullion? Can you speak to the verification the audit process, the insurance process. Can you just kind of briefly go over that and the key points? Yes, essentially our philosophy is that we, we are building systems that are so transparent that any error we do is going to be viewable by everybody. And because we do it this way, 
you know, we are putting a lot of pressure on ourselves to keep everything extremely clean. And uh, part of that is, of course, the audit, audit part. What we are doing is that we have two different sets of auditors. Uh, one is Ernst & Young, um, which is one of the four big uh, accounting companies. And the other one is um, Bureau Veritas, which is the company which is typically used by Waltz uh, as a third-party independent auditor of precious metals. And we are doing four physical audits per year, so roughly once per quarter. Three times it's per year it's going to be Bureau Veritas, and once it's going to be Ernst & Young, uh, which is also our financial auditor. So what the auditors will do is they will actually come, so we'll get on a parcel ownership list, which is a master list of all the different parcels of gold and silver that we store, and they're going to select about 30% of these and they're going to want to see physical proof uh, sets that Boolean really is there. And uh, after that is done, they will release a report of the findings, and then we'll publish that report. Uh, and, and that's essentially how uh, the audits are, are working. Uh, because it's around 30% um, of the span of a year, you end up going through almost all of the inventories that we store. Uh, when the auditors put check some of the gold, because we're normally storing it in these pallet cages, uh, you can see some videos of the vault where you will see these uh, one-ton silver cages, essentially, where the silver is being kept. Uh, they will seal these cages uh, with their own seal, and if that box was not accessed in the next quarter, they'll be checking other boxes because of that pallet cages. Because of that, essentially, we'll be going through the whole uh, holdings, typically. Uh, throughout the period of one year. So that essentially gives it a very good third-party audit because we have two respectable auditors uh, physically going through all those metals uh, in the span of one year. Uh, the other option for you is to uh, make your own audit. So you can come uh, physically to Silver Bullion, uh, I'm sorry, towards the safe house or vault here in Singapore, and you can essentially ask for your parcels to be seen. So we're storing close to 30,000 parcels right now. And say, for example, you have four of these parcels and you can say, I want to see my four parcels. And what, what we will do is we'll basically look in our vault management system where these are and we will then use the grain to then take these parcels and basically deliver them to you. Um, and we had customers who would actually show up un unannounced uh, and, and asked to see their, their precious metals. We had customers who had uh, who hired other companies to basically go and do a check. Uh, and I'm happy to report that we've never ever had an issue. We've always been able to not just have the bullion, but know exactly where it is. And that's one of the things that makes us somewhat unique in, in that we we are storing everything on a segregated ownership basis and basically have to keep track of every parcel at any point in time because if we end up misplacing or placing a parcel uh, in a location where it shouldn't be and we cannot find it then we have a big problem because we have 30,000 parcels to go through and find such a specific parcel and again that is because a customer is not just owning say 100 ounces of silver with us Instead, he is owning bar number 725532. So we have to know where bar number 725532 is at any point in time. 
of course that uh, gives a lot of transparency and it also makes audits uh, you know easier and and it's very easy to to do follow through and this whole system essentially keeps us honest and i designed all these systems to do exactly that because uh, you cannot ask people to trust you uh, but you can build systems that are so transparent that customer trust will come over time i would just add just on that note that you guys you know online have made it very easy for clients who purchase to receive the parcel photos the documentation that shows the serial numbers etc so it's it's very easy to correspond and and hopefully one of those days I'll be able to get out there myself personally also and check in and do the same. Can you also speak to one the insurance um, and then also what are you guys doing on and I know you've got some different stuff that you guys are doing but what are you doing on the fake gold the fake silver front? One of the reasons why we built the safe house in the first place our own gold was because we did not like the insurance that we were having when we were outsourcing it um, to one of the commercial walls. And the issue was, is at the time when, when we first started in 2011 to 2012 or so, um, the contract we had to sign would state that uh, mysterious disappearance was not covered by insurance. So we had to sign a clause saying that if the gold or silver mysteriously disappears, then it's not covered. And um, maybe I should back, go back for a moment here and, and basically explain something that, that um, you know, I think is important for listeners to know. Is when, when you go to a bullion dealer or a bank or some other entity and you ask about what the insurance for your gold or silver is most likely that answer will be not to worry because you have all risk insurance now all risk insurance is not what most people think it means all risk insurance is a technical term insurance term which essentially means all risk covered unless excluded so if somebody tells you you have all risk insurance but doesn't tell you what is excluded it really doesn't mean anything now when it comes to the exclusions, the most important thing you have to look at is mysterious disappearance, because typically these insurance policies have uh, three important factors. There's the fire and theft, which everybody has, that's very clear cut. Uh, there's the infidelity, which essentially covers uh, the insider jobs that have been discovered. And then there's mysterious disappearance, which is covering basically everything else. Now, that insurance oftentimes is not there because it's expensive and because it requires a lot of trust by the insurance company to actually uh, cover a vault for this. Because think about it this way. If a customer, if something gets stolen or if there's an inside job, then a vault operator can go to the police. The police can create a report. The report can be given to the insurance company in order to make a claim. That's very clear cut. But if it's a mysterious disappearance, by definition, it means that we don't know what happened. So you can't go to the police because the, if you tell the police, I thought I had 100 bars of gold, but they're only 99, the police is going to say, well, too bad for you. I mean, what do we know what happened? 
and going back to the insurance company being able to make a claim because they're missing gold bars without knowing why uh, that's something that a lot of insurance companies don't want to do uh, and and that's why it's common not to have mysterious disappearances uh, for us when we built the safe house uh, one of my goals especially because we are a new company back then uh, was to make sure that we have mysterious disappearance coverage and I spend a lot of time to essentially build the world management system uh, which is sophisticated enough and uh, to not only track all of these parcels reliably but to also give enough trust to the insurance company which came in the form of species inspector which especially is it's a risk inspector who's going to look at your processes and decide whether you can qualify for this kind of, of insurance to essentially give enough confidence to the insurance company to give us this coverage. And every species inspector we had has given us uh, no improvement recommendation, which is the highest grade you can get. And because of that, we have mysterious disappearance coverage um, covered. We have infidelity and we have fire and theft, of course. Uh, you can see the, the insurance certificates online. Uh, we are now being covered for 450 million Singapore dollars, which means in theory, all of our gold and silver could mysteriously disappear and the insurance company will have to pay for, for all of that. Uh, but having said that, we never had a claim in our history and um, we are making very sure that we don't have a claim, which is why we essentially have a good rate, good insurance rate, despite having such a good coverage. So that's the coverage uh, side of things. When it comes to precious metals and how we make sure that, that they're real, we started addressing this issue back in 2012. Um, back around that time, the first X-ray spectrometers came on the market. We essentially designed a way of testing bullion, which involves uh, doing a density test, which is a standard way in the industry, which basically means you weigh it as well as make sure the volume is what it should be. Uh, we then do an ultrasound test, which sends sound waves through the metal, which is a very good way of detecting tungsten or other metals inside a bar, which shouldn't be so. And then we do an X-ray spectrography, which gives you the surface composition of the bar. And these three tests uh, then essentially go into a report. And we test all bars that we are getting at silver bullion uh, or coins, which are not coming directly from a refiner or, or cement. So if there's a transfer in or a transfer for another vault from customer's bullion, we essentially do this testing uh, to make sure that the bullion is indeed um, genuine. And because we do all of this, we're essentially storing it on a non-good basis as opposed to storing it on a set or contained basis, which is what the industry standard is. And that's also an important reason why we can do a peer-to-peer -peer lending system uh, without having to worry about finding out, you know, after the fact that some of the bullion might not be uh, what it's supposed to be. And uh, to further solid solidify this, we have the bullion genuinity guarantee which essentially says that if there's ever any bullion which is, has problems, then we will be replacing said bullion. Um, and maybe I should add to that that Silver Bullion as a company owns debt-free half a million ounces of silver, 
and about 2,500 ounces of gold. So we are very well capitalized uh, and we have zero debt as a company. So uh, when we make that promise, it's not just a paper promise. We we have a lot of gold and silver that you know we have there as a company as well to to back that guarantee. Well, great information, Gregor. Uh, extreme detail. The point about mysterious disappearance how you guys are handling, looking at uh, materials that are coming into your guys' facility. Can you speak to the relationships? You touched on that for a moment. Um, are you basically sourcing a lot of material directly from Mens worldwide? Yes. It's, so the way this works is that we, we can mostly get bars directly from refineries. When it comes to coins, and it's the U.S. Mint and the Royal Canadian Mint, which have the most popular mints out there, uh, they will only distribute their these coins through a small number of uh, primary distributors. So you essentially have to go through one large distributor who's going to send it to you. Um, but as I said, we tend to get it directly from the refineries. And in the case of Singapore, what's nice is that we have Metalor here, which is a Swiss refinery, which essentially is refining gold in Singapore directly. And that's giving a lot of uh, easy liquidity when it comes to gold, essentially. Uh, so whenever possible, we are getting it directly from, from the refinery. Okay, good information. Now, can you speak to maybe some new products? What are you guys looking at doing out there? Uh, is there going to be a silver bullion debit card or any other kind of new product and features that you're looking to add? And then with that, Gregor, is Silver Billion looking to add other jurisdictions or are you guys quite happy where you're at? Okay, from a, maybe I'll start with the jurisdiction side. For us, it's very important not to have other jurisdictions um, because whenever you add a jurisdiction and you store a significant amount of uh, gold or silver in that jurisdiction, you are inheriting or you become dependent on that jurisdiction, so the laws of that jurisdiction. So uh, we want to stay in Singapore and we want to have exclusive Singapore jurisdiction uh, because we only want to have to follow Singapore law. Uh, once we start, if we start having bullion in five different countries, for example, uh, we are now going to have to follow the rules of five different countries. And a lot of our customers are worried about the United States nationalizing gold at some point in the future. So if we end up storing a lot of gold in the US, for example, and the US nationalizes gold, we would now be under pressure uh, to potentially have to return gold, which is stored in Singapore as well, because we have to follow US laws. So for silver bullion, from the start, it was strategically built to only be a Singaporean company that only has to follow Singapore law. Now, we do have a small retail presence in Malaysia, but essentially that's not very material uh, in this context. So essentially there's no plans for us to move to other jurisdictions as far as silver bullion is concerned. Now, coming back to some of the new products, some of the new designs, some of the new technologies we are creating. One thing I learned about our peer-to-peer -peer lending system, um, it's been working extremely well, but the downside of the system is that all the safety built into it means that we are limited to people who are storing bullion with us at the safe house. So I've been looking at a way to take the tracking technologies that we build at the safe house 
uh, ideally improve on it and build a version of it that I can deploy in third-party vaults that I trust. So, and if I can do that, I can then basically expand the peer-to-peer -peer lending system to other vaults. And that would really enable the system to, to grow a lot more while still having portals of the Boolean and a lot, of, a lot of transparency. And so two years ago, I essentially started working on a system that we call gram chain. Uh, gram, just like, you know, the, the unit of measure gram and chain. Um, and you can see it in gramchain.net, uh, say the website. And essentially what gramchain does is it keeps track of events that are happening on a Boolean item. It's not just an inventory system per se, but it's a system which will uh, track what happens to a bar. So uh, normally it's the life of an item or a gold bar saying the system will start with a scan event. Um, we will be providing uh, RFID chips and tamper evident bags to the vault which is implementing this, as well as specialized scanners, um, which are basically apps that we developed um, on, on a tablet and the RFID scanner integrated. And we give this to the vault. The vault operators will send log into the system and they will scan a bar, they will take a photo of it. And that information, as well as you know, the amount of gold, the purity, uh, the brand and so on, will then be uploaded to, to an API, um, it's basically a computer interface. That data will be hashed and it will then be written to a public blockchain to have proof of that it wasn't tampered with. And then it will be stored in the chain database. And that data will be for public view so that everybody can see it. Now, what the system essentially does is eliminates a lot of the ways that there can be fraud in the system because instead of relying on some paper document, which nowadays is very easy to forge, um, it's a gram chain system goes down to a very granular, granular level where a vault operator at the vault that's being stored has to physically scan the bar. We store who, when, and at what location it was scanned. That information goes on the blockchain to make sure it becomes immutable. And the data is then made public to everybody. If a mistake happens, that mistake will never be removed. It will just be an older event. They have to scan it again in order to make up for, for, that, for that error. But it's essentially a series of events which keep on being accumulated. Um, once I have a scan event, I know the gold bar is there. Um, the next step would be to have an assign event. An assign event will basically be the vault operators um, making a scan of the vault document which shows who owns the bar or who says custody of the bar, I should say. Um, and essentially it answers the question who owns it. And again, if you put in Gramschein, that information will be public. If you don't want that to be public, then it shouldn't have an assigned event. Um, once it has an assigned event, it can then have a lock event. A lock event will not be done by the vault, but will be done by the 
custodian who has uh, who basically owns these bars or has custody on these bars at the vault and a lock event essentially allows you to use that boolean for some purpose such as locking it for example to do a peer-to-peer -peer lending loan or you could lock it for example to back a gold token and provide a very good proof of reserve to make sure that the gold really is there or you can lock it for any other number of purposes and one of the important things with the system is um, it shows you what the gold is used for and because it shows you that uh, it is also ensuring that that gold is not being used for two different purposes unless it's done you know outside the scope of the system and these are all some of the issues you know which i felt are very important to address because i believe that if we can have a transparent tracking system like this which it could become a standard which allows other dealers or other companies to build uh, apps on top of it and, and i'm designing it as an open system essentially then this will allow people to make much more use of the physical gold and essentially be able to bypass a lot of middlemen because uh, you might not need to have a bank in between the use of your gold and the storage of it ultimately that's going to be benefit i believe the vault operators is going to benefit the end consumers and it's going to benefit the people which are building applications behind it um, and uh, it might not benefit the, the middleman in between such as the banks but uh, i believe that a system like this is exactly what we need uh, going into the future because i'm more or less on a mission to try and figure out ways to create systems that are backed by gold in a very transparent way with a very, very low chance of there being fraud uh, because of all these safeguards. And that's essentially what Gramchain is. That leads me to you know, what we are going to be using it for, which uh, right now is we're using it as a proof of reserve for uh, gold tokens that we're developing as part of a separate company. The company is called Cash. You can see it at cache.gold. When I say cache, that is like say computer memory, C-A-C-H-E essentially. And this gold token essentially is built to be always be uh, backed by physical gold and silver in, in various walls. Right now we have the grand chain system working in the safe house uh, here in Singapore. Uh, we managed to get on board a very big distributor in the United States for gold and silver, uh, Dylan Gage, uh, who also bought into cash. And so we are now storing gold in IDS Dallas uh, with, with Dylan Gage. Uh, and we have the system deployed in Lumis, which is one of the largest vault operators out there, especially in Switzerland. Uh, and we have a contract with Springs now to also deploy the system, which gives us um, an ability to have the system deployed, I would say, in the majority of vaults throughout the world, which is storing significant amount of gold now. And what we're trying to do with the system is, is as I mentioned, to, to take some of the technologies, technologies that we developed for silver bullion and be able to expand it beyond just silver bullion. Lots of good detailed information. And Gregor, I think we could talk uh, a lot longer and I'm gonna have to slice out some of my questions here, but I wanna ask you three more topics before we wrap up. First off, can you come back just a little bit and speak to COVID 
what's happened on the gold side? What are you seeing in the gold market for physical gold and also the silver market? Can you just kind of speak to what's going on in the world today? Yes. One thing you have to understand is that the gold market is, is at least 200 times larger than the silver market. When you start seeing scarcity, when the demand is starting to, to go up for physical gold and silver, silver is a little bit like the canary in the, in the coal mine. Um, and what tends to happen is that very quickly we'll be running out of silver supply. And, and that's what happened. Um, as about a month ago, uh, or let's say, depends how you count it, but by by early April, we essentially started having difficulty sourcing new silver, uh, especially coins. Uh, the premium for coins, when we buy it from the refinery, a maple leaf coin, um, will be will cost $101.50 per coin as produced by the mint. By the time it would then have to be shipped to Singapore and the distributor, the primary distributor, like Dylan Gage, for example, say we'll be paying for the transport and so on. By the time we get it, say we're going to be ending to have to pay about $1.70 per coin. And we will end up selling that coin for, say, $1.90 or $2 above spot. So that gives you an idea of the profit margins, you know, 20 cents, 25 cents pounds of silver per coin. Now, what's what happened is that demand for these coins has gone way up and there's not enough supply. So these coins have gone from being about $2 above spot to being as high as $12 above spot. Now, if you go to AppMax, if you go to uh, as a dealers in the United States, you will find that these maple leaves are now selling as much as 100% above the price of silver. Uh, this is something that also happened in 2008 during the financial crisis, and it just reflects that in a time of crisis, having the physical silver, uh, people are willing to pay a big premium to have such physical silver as opposed to have an IOU uh, for paper gold. And that's what we are seeing, which um, to us in practice means that it is almost impossible to get new supplies of coins right now. It is difficult or nearly impossible to get small silver bars. It is also very difficult to get small gold bars, um, meaning smaller than 100 grams. Um, and in the case of silver, uh, the only type of silver which we can get right now is 1,000 ounce good delivery bars. We are still able to get those, but everything smaller than that is not possible to get, or the premiums are extremely high, like I just mentioned. In the case of gold, uh, one kilo bars we are able to obtain. 100 gram bars are somewhat difficult uh, to get, and 400 ounce good delivery bars we can still get. So all the small um, bars and coins essentially are very difficult to get and that's because of two reasons both having to do with COVID-19. Um, one of it is of course the shutdown of the economy is making people worried that banks and other institutions might end up being in trouble as a consequence of, of what's happening right now and so they want to buy physical instead of instead of paper so that's what's driving up the physical demand. 
at the same time, um, because the stock markets have been crashing, a lot of people had to sell everything they have because of margin calls, which means that the stock market is crashing and people have been selling the silver and gold uh, paper, which means that silver prices actually crashed from about $18 down to $12 in the span of a few days. So basically silver has been crashing while physical demand has gone way up which means that essentially there's a scarcity because we're having a product whose price keeps on falling or kept on falling it's going back up now uh, and whose demand has basically exploded to give you an idea in march we had at least five times we've we've beaten our record months by almost five times so wow. the demand has just spiked incredibly high. We we've we've having we we got to a point where it was no longer important to sell silver. It was important to find sources on where to get silver, and we kept on increasing our buyback for our coins. For example, we are buying maple leaf coins at thirty percent, twenty-five to thirty percent above spot. We're trying to convince people to actually sell back because it's so hard to get. So uh, COVID-19 basically had that, that reaction. It caused silver and gold prices to fall. It caused physical demand to go, to go way up, which then ended up causing premiums to go way up. And uh, another issue with silver and gold right now is that because so many of the planes have been grounded, it is also getting more difficult to get silver shipped around because you know, normally you would say put three tons of silver on a plane, but nowadays those three tons of cargo capacity has gotten very precious um, because a lot of that silver used to fly on passenger planes and 90% of these planes are no longer flying. So it's also difficult to get the physical gold and silver here. So there's a lot of these logistical issues um, that we've been facing. And right. It's it's taking some time for them to be kind of be worked out, um, but it it also validates you know the narratives that we like to tell people that when you have a crisis, you know it it pays to own the physical metal, and not the the paper metal because the worse the crisis gets, the more of a premium increase you will see in the physical prices, and uh, if things get bad enough, then you might see a default in comics and which is basically this connection between the paper price and you know the physical and if that happens then basically people who have the physical probably end up getting a new price discovery mechanism to value the physical bullion separately from the paper because the paper might be worthless it all comes back down to a matter of trust which you know it, it's basically everything underpins trust the only reason the us dollar is valuable is because people trust it it's the only piece in reason a bank is solvent is because people trust the bank because the bank does not have enough funds to cover all of its liability typically so um, if the trust is gone then only the people which have the physical gold and silver you know are sure to to be able to protect their wealth and grow the wealth in an environment like that and, and that's basically what we're seeing so it's a very interesting sort of situation. We we made some videos about this, by the way, 
um, to sort of explain a bit more detail what we've seen and what's been happening over the last months on this. Maybe I can give you a link later if, if you're interested about it. Do you see where we are? And I, I could talk more about this, but let's save it for another uh, show. Hope you'll come back. Um, mm -hmm. We have this panic phase in the market. So people deleverage, they sell. We see the, the quick decline in gold and silver. And then we've seen a recovery in the gold and silver price uh, since the March lows. Would you say the panic phase is over? But if we continue into a bear market in the broad stock market, where do you see gold and silver headed from here, Gregor? When you look at what the Federal Reserve in the U.S. has done, what's your opinion on the price of price improvement of gold and silver going forward? Well, I like to preface this with the fact that the physical market does not determine the price of gold and silver at this point. The prices are determined essentially by paper traders. So that's why when you have the crisis, gold and silver actually fall while physical demand is going way up because a lot of people are confused. You know, why does the price of silver go, gold go down in a crisis when it's supposed to be going up? And the answer is because it's it's not the physical that's determining the price, but the leveraged um, comics future contracts and the people moving the large amounts of holy, of the contacts around basically are banks who might need that money suddenly. So in the short term, you can see a lot of this variability. You can see prices going down like this. But in, but once that subsides and once these, these paper gold guys are out or have rebalanced whatever they need to rebalance to pay off, make up the losses, um, you, you can then see a gradual increase in price of silver and gold, which is exactly what happened in 2008 as well, um, as more and more people are buying the physical. And as more people buy the physical in particular, the premiums are going up because there isn't enough to go around. Now, if the crisis becomes worse, then you can expect the price of gold and silver to continue to, to rise. Um, in 2008, silver, for example, it fell from about $14 or so to about $9.50 because of that crisis. But then one and a half years later, two years later, silver ended up trading at 48. So it went up five times. Um, and you know what, what we saw this time around is silver fell from 18 down to 12. And now it's going back to around 15. Um, I wouldn't be surprised for silver you know, in two years time to be back to 30 or 35 dollars. I, I kind of expect that actually. Um, but, uh, and a similar story for gold. But, you know, it's it's very difficult to give any kind of real advice on this because ultimately it's all about psychology. Um, there are two scenarios in my mind. Uh, I think the likelihood for gold or silver to go up is almost certain because COVID-19, the economic effects of COVID-19 will be with us for another year or two years at the very least, or it might have changed things permanently. Um, so, uh, and it took people out of the comfort zone. People are used or expecting tomorrow to be just like today. And suddenly COVID-19 changed everything. That also makes people question and make people ask, well, maybe, um, some other things that I thought would always be the same, won't be the same. And because of that reason, 
they're starting to think a little bit about my future and about how to protect yourself. And that's typically once they start doing that kind of research, uh, they will become aware of the role of gold and silver in all of this. Because, and here's the most important part, scenario two is that we have a health crisis with COVID-19 and that has become uh, an economic crisis. Uh, I do think that from the economic crisis, we will most likely be seeing a financial crisis because uh, Europe in particular, the banks are not very strong in Europe and in places like Italy, uh, they have so much, uh, so many loans which really are not performing that, you know, once you put the crisis on top, these Italian banks are in really bad shape. And, you know, if they were to default, if they don't get enough money from the governments, uh, since that might cause other banks to go into trouble and so on. So we, we might be seeing a financial crisis coming soon. And once we have a financial crisis, the question is, what are the chances for that to become a currency crisis? And what I mean with currency crisis is uh, you take the United States dollars, it's only backed by the full faith and credit of the United States. If the United States they just printed two trillion dollars, you know, to combat COVID-19. If you have a financial crisis and now they have to go and bail out, you know, AIG and JP Morgan and all these other banks again, and we have a lot more leverage in the system than we did back in 2008 now, uh, then how many trillions are needed to do that? And if they decide to bail these banks out again and are going to print more currency, what if people lose trust in that currency? What if people lose trust in the United States dollar? And keep in mind, the United States, you know, is, is politicized in the US dollars in many ways. A lot of countries feel that they're being controlled by the United States unfairly. I'll give you an example. The United States, um, you know, told Europe that they're not allowed to build a pipeline between Russia and and Europe to buy Russian gas and saying, Europe, we are doing it for your own good. You know, you're going to have to buy American oil uh, gas. And they're, they're able to get away with it because they've threatened the companies that are building this pipeline with sanctions, which would essentially bankrupt the company. So the companies ended up not um, building that anymore. But in, in short term, you know, that's something the US administration did. Uh, but long term, that means that Europe is now looking at not using US dollars or diminishing, you know, the power of the United States dollar. And Europe used to be a strong ally of the US. Now, you know, they're really looking for alternatives because of things like this. So uh, China, of course, you have this continual, you know, back and forth that you're happening. So as, uh, as the world changes, people are starting to look for alternatives to the United States dollar. If too much US dollars are being printed, there might be a catalyst, there might be a point where enough people says we want to find an alternative. And if that then causes other people to sell the United States dollars, dollars or not buy US bonds or lose faith in the United States dollar, then you have a currency crisis. And when you have a currency crisis, you know, then we are going to have a real problem on our hand, which is going to be so much worse than what we have right now. And that's when gold and silver, you know, will not just be a way of protecting your wealth, but it will be something that will make you very rich.
um, because everybody is going to essentially want to have such safety. If you don't put your, your wealth into US dollars as your base currency, where do you put it? Uh, the Japanese yen has even more debt than the United States dollar. Uh, the euro has its own problems. The Chinese yuan, you know, it's not internationally traded and, you know, people wouldn't probably trust it either. The Swiss francs and Singapore dollars, well, they're small currencies, they can't absorb all of this. So gold and silver is something that people, I think, will increasingly turn back to as, you know, being a safe store of value, which has proven itself over 5,000 years. So when when such trust evaporates, and that's why I'm saying it all comes back down to trust, uh, that's when you want to own some physical gold and silver to see you through that time. I'm in close alignment with your views on the issues here. We may yet see the day where it takes a wheelbarrow of dollars to buy a loaf of bread. Certainly the U.S. has every interest to have everybody around the world transact in U.S. dollars, uh, just like this uh, Russian gas pipeline to Europe. Transactions in dollars, transactions in dollars, why many in the world community are trying to transact without U.S. dollars at this point. If I might add, so you know, it's it, it's not just because listeners might not understand this part. It's not just the U.S. being the U.S. dollar being used because people would say, why can't I just pay in euro? The issue is that if so all of the world's banks, maybe with exception of North Korean and Chinese banks and Iranian banks, uh, essentially have to follow the United States um, uh, policy because if they don't. Uh, every wire transfer that's being made has to go through New York. And if the United States doesn't like a certain bank, they can threaten that bank uh, to essentially no longer allow wire transfers and get the other banks to remove the corresponding banking accounts with that bank, which essentially would mean that that bank will not be able to transfer US dollars or other currencies to other banks. And a bank that cannot transfer money essentially is going to go bankrupt. Which means that even if you're a European bank and you say you're under European or say German jurisdiction, you're still going to have to follow whatever the United States says. And that's why these banks don't have a choice. And that's why if Germany decides that they still want German companies to work with Iran, but the United States says no, since the practical effect is that no German company will work with Iran because the German, they would have to use a bank to transfer these funds. And that bank will not want to cross the United States, which essentially means the United States is dictating German or European foreign policy. And, and that's how powerful the United States is. And that's why the US dollar is still so valuable despite so much of it being printed. Correct. And when that system breaks, when that trust or when, you know, these countries find an alternative way of transacting with this, uh, then, you know, a, a lot of things can change very quickly. Yes, yes, absolutely. And having the world's reserve currency, you can be sloppy. But as you stated there, these reservations by other countries looking to avoid the SWIFT system, come up with your own system or transact, you know, deals and other currencies and, and try to avoid the use of the US dollar, I can see where some of those countries are starting to get, for lack of better words, fed up with what's going on. 
Well, Gregor, let's let's move on here because I'd like to talk to you about that more, but let's cover a few other items here to, just to close out. So as you know, a new competitor is in the business that offers some new features, but not all of the features of Silver Bullion. What are your thoughts on One Gold, and how does Silver Bullion offer a better setup? Now, if I'm not mistaken, One Gold is essentially the, the app run by AppNex, mostly. Is that correct? Correct. Okay, I, I've heard we, we interviewed uh, the CEO of Appnex as part of SBTV. So that's basically what I know about One Gold, but I have not used it myself. So essentially, One Gold, if I said correctly, it allows you to buy gold. Uh, that gold is being kept on a, I believe, a fully allocated basis by Appnex, and you then essentially can transfer it to to other people. But it is not a public token, so it's not an internet-based public token. Instead, it is a unit of account which is basically used by uh, on the AppNex servers or the service providers. So where do I see it? I will put it in between what we are doing. When it comes to Silver Bullion's mission, Silver Bullion's mission is to essentially provide systemic wealth storage uh, protection. And what that means is we are basically going to customers who are worried about gold nationalizations and so on, and, and which are really keen on having the gold in, stored in the safest way possible. So uh, those people will probably not use one gold uh, because they, they probably want you know, that security side of it. Um, when it then comes to the liquidity, meaning people who want to be able to easily transfer uh, gold from one entity to another through an app and so on, that's probably where, where um, one gold sort of has a sweet spot. Um, but if you want to go beyond that, that's where you know I think we uh, our cash project lies. So cash uh, essentially is a public traded token. Uh, which is regulated uh, by the Singapore uh, government and it is fully backed with the new grand chain system we developed. So, and the reason I'll be putting it beyond the one app is that if you're using one app, you're essentially locked in uh, the providers of that system. When you're looking at cash, the idea behind cash, and we are about to launch this, by the way, um, you essentially have a public token which acts just like Bitcoin, which means that you can send it to anybody uh, independently of us. And you can uh, redeem these tokens for physical bars that are stored not just by us, but by other liquidity providers. Right now, these liquidity providers are Dylan Gage, which, if you don't know, Dylan Gage is one of the largest bullion distributors in the United States uh, by silver bullion and uh, gold and bullion, and we'll be adding more liquidity providers to it. And what that means is that when you want to redeem these bars, you can actually have an option of selling it to the highest bidder of these liquidity providers. And uh, you can then have it converted into US dollars. So what 
cash essentially does it allows you to convert say bitcoin into cash gold tokens redeems these cash gold tokens through one of the liquidity providers or gold dealers basically uh, by getting a gold bar and selling that gold bar uh, to get us dollars so when it comes to a liquidity uh, functionality uh, i would think that that you know the cash gold will be very appealing to people which uh, like cryptocurrencies and essentially want to have a way to convert uh, to either store gold or to convert from say a cryptocurrency back into fiat and so one gold essentially in my mind will be sitting between these two type of services it's hard to compare the two. I think that uh, different services here provide different things and certainly could be used as a complement, which uh, is my view on it. But there's things that Silver Bullion provides that one gold does not provide. That's the interesting part. But to give you an example, it's the reason why, for example, Silver Bullion will probably not have uh, a credit card is if you want to, if we want to have a credit card associated with Silver Bullion, we have to basically have a lot more banking connections and one of the philosophies of silver bullion is to minimize the use of of any type of counterparty to the absolute minimum so we basically don't want silver bullion um, to use third party services um, financial services beyond just having a checking account essentially so we are very hardcore when it comes to silver bullion in that regard um, but a credit card can be quite interesting for cash. So yes. a silver bullion is all about wealth protection and, and insulating itself uh, from other entities and counterparty risk, whereas cash is going to be directed much more towards liquidity and having a credit card can be quite nice because you will be able to basically buy <clears throat> this cash token or be able to have a balance being sold through that. But having said that, the problem with credit cards is that they're dependent on the goodwill uh, of the financial system. And if they feel that for whatever reason the system is sort of threatening the status quo, you know, then it 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 would normally be taken away. And that's why you have seen many cases where um, companies which have such credit cards, you know, after a year suddenly they disappear. And it it tends to be because as the banks suddenly no longer feel comfortable with with it being used. I agree with your position. I think it's a good one to take, and I think you're making the right moves. Well, as we wrap up here, Gregor, can we expect more of the same for decades to come? And will Silver Bullion remain your focus? Uh, yes, Silver Bullion will always be my, my first priority. You know, for the most part, Silver Bullion is... I'm fortunate in that it's being run by very good people now, which are also owners of it. So I don't have to spend a lot of time on it and I'm free to sort of develop some of these new systems such as Grand Chain and, and, and Cash. But Silver Bullion, I don't expect there to be big changes because we spent the last eight years to basically keep on asking customers, you know, what else are you worried about? Uh, as far as security and issues that might come up and we kept on sort of addressing these issues to a point now we have sort of run out of immediate ideas on how to improve it further and silver bullion itself uh, as i mentioned 
we can run the whole company uh, just based on on storage income which means that even if we have zero sales we'll still be fine and as i mentioned we have zero debt and we have about 15 million dollars of net assets silver bullion is this by by design we build the system so that uh, we don't hold your gold instead we are just storing it on your, your behalf so it's your gold so it's all focused about being the safest way uh, to basically hold bullion offshore for for customers and that will not change we will stay in singapore because we don't want to have some other jurisdictional uh, dependencies come in and you know basically just just be that safe store of value a systemic store of value so yeah, so there won't be there won't be many changes there. Uh, new services and new products at this point will probably be coming from new companies, uh, such as such as Cash. For potential clients who are listening, why should they open a Silver Bullion account today? What would you say to them? I would say that you know you can look at it as an insurance. Opening an account with Silver Bullion is like having a wealth insurance. On average, gold will go up about 4.2 percent per year. That's the average over the last 107 years. Putting some of your money into physical gold or silver is not a bad idea no matter what. Some years it might go down, other years it might go up, but on average it will go up 4.2% per year in US dollar terms. But at the same time, if you have a financial crisis and if things go really bad, then having some gold or silver stored in Singapore as a service safe jurisdiction essentially can be a financial lifesaver because uh, it will give you that, that backup plan. That's what most of our customers look at us, as something that you put in there, you hold that gold or that silver long term, and you hope you don't need it. And that's essentially what the role of silver bullion is. And we made sure that we covered all the counterparty risk issues that you might have, you know, whether it's real gold or fake gold, how it's being insured, how we make sure it's there, how it's being audited, making sure that we are a strong counterparty. You know, all these things, all these details as you go through as uh, these things that you would have to worry about uh, with storing, you know, your wealth with somebody. We, we we believe we addressed all of these. That's essentially why we've been growing the way we do. Uh, a lot of our growth is essentially word of mouth of customers which got to know us. Yeah, that's essentially the reason. Look at it as an insurance, more than as an investment. And Gregor, how can folks reach out to learn more about Silver Bullion? The easiest thing will be go to silverbullion.com.sg. That's our main website, and you will be able to have links there from to our videos. You can see videos of the safe house. You can see the storage costs. You can see the parcels. You can see the peer-to-peer -peer lending offers, lending requests. So almost everything we do. Uh, it's very public when it comes to to our operations. And of course, the privacy of customers is very important for us, but we believe that we ourselves should be very transparent. And so you will find a wealth of information on our website. Well, it's a great proposition that you've laid out with Silver Bullion, Gregor. It's been a pleasure. Really appreciate you coming on and taking the time to go over all the services that you offer at Silver Bullion. And uh, we hope our audience gives it uh, some good due consideration. Sounds good. Thank you very much for having me.